Hey, tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. Welcome to the Tourpreneur Podcast. Travel industry veteran Shane Whaley will take you on a journey with fellow tourpreneurs, sharing their tips, ideas, insights, and success stories to inspire you to make your tour business the best it can be. And now, here is your host, Shane Whaley. And welcome to the Tourpreneur Podcast. Today, we are talking to Zakir of Invisible Cities. Now, for those of you who don't know, Invisible Cities is a social enterprise that trains people who have experienced homelessness to become walking tour guides of their own city. Welcome to Tourpreneur, Zakir. Thank you. Thank you for having me um, on the podcast. This is really exciting. Absolutely. I really wanted to chat with you at Arrival when we met there at Orlando, but I was just doing those 10-minute interviews at Arrival and I know that 10 minutes isn't going to do you justice. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate having a bit more time to go through everything. Absolutely. So for our listeners who don't know what the term social enterprise actually means, how would you explain it? So social enterprise, I think, depending on what country you're in, can mean different things. But at least certainly for us in Scotland, it's a hybrid of two types of organization, a charity or an organization led by a social mission while doing business. So Invisible Cities being a social enterprise, it means we are a business like any other type of business. We trade, we make profit, we pay business tax um, and all of this. But at the same time, everything that we do is around social impact. So we support people and we put 100% of our profit into the social mission, which in our case is to support people who have experienced homelessness and break down the stereotypes that exist around homelessness um, and support our wider community. So I it would be an in-between between a charity and, and a corporation uh, would be probably the most straightforward, easy definition. But business for good is a term that I've heard being used as well. And social business. Yeah, everything that we do is not based around profitability or any of that. Everything that we do in our case is based around the people that we work with. So sometimes it means being less profitable or less kind of performing on certain tasks because we take a bit longer. We put people at the center of everything we do. So how did this all get started for you? So the beginning of the story is that even though I come from France, I live in Scotland and I have lived here for about 11, 12 years now. Um, and I used to work with other organizations, charities mainly that support homeless people, people experiencing homelessness around the world and a bit in Scotland. People like The Big Issue, which for those who don't know is a street magazine. So 
people who have an experience of homelessness can sell a copy of the big issue here in the UK and they get half of the magazine price um, for themselves. So I saw different, loads of different kind of initiatives and companies and charities. And it, it was very much my first experience working with homeless people. And I didn't really know what being homeless meant. You know, my background is in social work or social support. It made me realize that loads of people had loads of different stories and that everyone was unique. But at the same time, that everyone faced a certain stigma around the word homeless and what it meant and had received abuse and had received kind of comments like, if you're homeless, it's because you're an addict or it's your fault, you haven't worked hard enough or there were certain ideas that were attached to hearing about homelessness or what homelessness actually meant. So I really wanted to start my own project and my own enterprise dealing with this stigma and trying to do something that would support people further or out of homelessness or kind of further along the way of a, of a development path, if you want. In 2015, I went to Greece. Uh, I have very good friends who stay there and some of these friends work for a street magazine there. And as well as the magazine, they also gave you tours of Athens. So that was very much the first inspiration for me. And I always use them as the kind of source and example. I really enjoyed those tours and I really enjoyed the stories that I heard. So from then on, when I came back to the UK, I really wanted to do something similar. I never really thought that Invisible Cities would be a company in its own right. I thought, you know, if I can empower and enable another organization to do the same, the big issue here, or even a charity or an NGO, or whatever, or a group of volunteers to start walking tours in the city, then I will be really happy. But unfortunately, everybody really loved the idea, but nobody had the resources or the capacity to do it. So from this spark of an idea to help someone else do it, it became quite obvious that if I wanted it to happen, I needed to lead on it. I started researching different models and that's when I put a plan together to start a company called Invisible Cities. It was an, a mix of loads of different influences and projects that seen around the world. And for me to be inspired by them, that's what it took to kind of start Invisible Cities here. I get asked all the time, how did you start kind of making those first steps to make it happen? And the first thing I did was to talk to as many people as I could about the idea and what they thought and how we could shape it together. 99% of the people I spoke to, I still speak to today because we still work together. It really felt like a common effort to make it happen. I've benefited a lot from advice and support from other organizations, uh, whether it's to recruit guides, you know, to train them, to support them, to sell tours, or whether it was for my own leadership skills or my own sometimes mental well-being, you know, on all different aspects of creating invisible cities. We have listeners, believe it or not, in 110 countries worldwide. I was just looking at stats for this year of 2019. The show has been downloaded 25,000 times. 
and I share this not to show off, but to <laughs> well, you should. Um, <laughs> but because I know that there are a lot of people who listen to the show who are what I call tourpreneurs in waiting. They haven't quite made the leap yet, or they're running their business and they're like, "Yeah, I want to do more for my community. We want to be sustainable. We want to help." So your words today, I am absolutely convinced as they did at Arrival Orlando, inspired a lot of people. And I think there's a lot of people who can listen to the show today that want to do something for the community and they're, they're kind of unsure how to go about it. So can I ask you then, so you, you got some good advice, you, you wrote your business plan. What were some of the other barriers that you experienced and how did you overcome them at the start? I don't come from a business background at all. In my own personal life, I'm one of these people, if I have $10, I will spend 11 you know, I don't save and I don't. So it, the business element of it, it was something that I had to learn as I went along and putting a business plan together and a cash flow and, you know, uh, or even an ask for people to support us. Um, all of these things I, I made up as I went along and made loads of mistakes and kind of went back on my proposal. Um, so that was the lack of, I guess, knowing and knowledge was a kind of barrier. And then... I have to say that in Scotland, the entrepreneur world is very collaborative, very nurturing. I was really lucky to be in a place where I was encouraged to do more and supported. The The first barrier, which I think is maybe one that some people think about straight away, is the funding. Where do I start? What do I do? I need to build this thing up what can I do? And I don't have any money for it because, like I said, I had no savings or no partner to rely on to lend me some money or anything like that. So again, approached a million people um, in the hope that some of them would, would support us. Sometimes that was, you know, in the form of grant funding or government support funding at local level. And sometimes that was big corporations. We were lucky that Edinburgh Airport had a community fund and they supported us very very early on i just i didn't even have a bank account when they agreed to give us a small grant so i had to make them wait until i had opened a business account so that was great because all of a sudden i had a bit of cash to spend on leaflets and a bit of website development and online marketing and the, the things that you first kind of need but the best piece of advice i got was just go and do it you know, I had started for, I always use it as an example. I had started uh, doing a survey, you know, one of these, uh, one of these things asking people, how often do you go on tours and how much are you willing to put in a tour and, and all these things. I shared that across all of my friends and family and people were starting to fill it in. Then I spoke to uh, Craig, who's my ex-boss and still to this day a great mentor of mine I said oh what do you think about that would that information be valuable for anyone wanting to support us in the future and he said no drop it I don't want to hear any of this I just want to go on a tour if you want me to invest in you and or support you fund you I need to see what you're doing the only way I can see is by going on a tour and get a feel of that experience so he said, I would drop all of this and just start working on actually making it happen, start recruiting people, even if it's just one, and then have your first tour, and that will um, start the ball rolling. And he was right. I think the minute we had our first tour, it was a lot easier for people to understand what we do, how we work, who we are, to get a feel of the company and of our, of our ethos. So 
maybe a big barrier was the lack of confidence or that that final push to go and do it and all of a sudden not sell the idea anymore but make the idea happen once we had that first round of training and and that first tour on the ground then things changed so how did you go about recruiting tour guides in the first instance i just spoke again to as many people as i could some of them thought i was crazy but i had made all these connections with charity soup kitchens organizations that support people with an experience of homelessness in loads of different ways so instead of speaking to the people in charge of these organizations i spoke to people who were benefiting from this organizations and started uh, recruiting a first group of four people for a first round of training one of them sunny is still with us today so mm-hmm. he's uh, doing well and he's actually going to be speaking at arrival in berlin so that's really exciting but I was incredibly lucky that these people stuck with it and it's it's a bit like you you take a bet on it as well. I just went to loads of events and loads of different things where people were given up food or you know winter hats and said would you consider being a tour guide? And uh, What was the response like Zakia when you cuz that's a random <laughs> question to get <laughs> from a from a girl that some of them had never met before. Um <laughs> some of them were like absolutely not no like what is this it's a crazy idea and some others like with sunny for instance were like absolutely you know i love chatting to people i've got great chats i can do this and i really tried to also be really honest with it you know and say you're not going to become a millionaire out of this because you're only going to do as many tours as we're able to sell and we only starting and so i tried to set expectations from the very very start but they really took it on and for those who decided to do it kind of really put themselves into it others were like no it's not for me i tried to encourage and to kind of emphasize the idea that it was about public speaking and it was about putting yourself out there as opposed to being a job or being a difficult exercise and we made up the training as we went along you know i was like what elements do you need to be a good uh, tour guide so that's history public speaking building a tour all of this but the the reaction was really really positive and recruiting guides in any given city is the hardest thing i think because when we did we did the same in glasgow and we organized two rounds of training and nobody turned up no one people liked the idea and they would sign up and they would say yeah yeah I'll come thursday at 2 p.m. no problem and then on the day nobody was there so i had to knock on doors and say why are you not here and people were like oh i'm too busy people committed to the idea but didn't commit to the thing and all you need is one person to actually do it and now i i don't know if it's the same everywhere but in in our communities here you know people who are experiencing homelessness it's a really tight group and community and people know every you know people from different events and things so they will now in edinburgh for instance we don't recruit people come because they've heard it from our own guides or our own trainees or so that takes care of itself but i always try to be really honest in everything that i do and uh, i think that's how people reacted they were like okay i get what you want and no it's not for me or yes i'll give it i'll give it a try what i particularly admire in you Zakir is that honesty and you know when I heard your I actually was unable to attend the session because I was interviewing but I watched the video that Arrival kindly put out and you said to quote you bloody hard 
to train tour guides. And, and I really love that authenticity because, you know, a lot of us want to do things in the community, but, you know, it's challenging. So not coming from the tour world, as it were, how did you come up with a curriculum of things that tour guides would need in order to make the tour successful? Um, it's the the biggest question of them all. I think so. Again, we, I made it up when I started. Um, I had approached another organization that does a lot of educational things because um, it was really important that the guides or the, the trainees, even though they didn't end up becoming guides with us or touring a lot or doing a lot of things, would gain certain things from it. They were investing their time and their energy into this, so I wanted them to come out with something useful. I had approached another charity and we took on some of the modules they already had, which was customer service and, and public speaking. We watched a lot of TED Talks, for instance, mm. in the first few days. And that changed as we continued moving forward, as also we got a better understanding of what a tour actually was. And we went to other professional guides and said, what do you think we really need? And I remember somebody saying, you need to learn how to cross the road. And as a French person, I just have no rule when it comes to crossing the road. I'll just cross anywhere at any time because I own the road, you know. So you can't do this because you're in charge of a group, you know, just very practical things. And as people came on board to support us, really shaped that training program that we have now. And then that was through professional guides, like I said, or also corporates, other companies that came on board and said, have you thought about delivering something around travelers' experience and what that means or how reviews work? And so it grew as we grew along and, and being flexible was really, really important. And a big part of our training is that our tours are scripted by our guides themselves. They tell their own stories in their own words. And that was really important. Again, it was a decision based on what we wanted to do in socially, because we didn't want to give stories that were not ours, that was mine. What I mean by that is I didn't want to put words in their mouths. So it may all be good in the world that I want to break down the stigma around homelessness, but if they don't want to talk about their personal experience of homelessness, that's totally fine. It was important that we respected that. So that came through empowering them to do this and for people to be comfortable enough to script those. So working in collaboration with others what's, is what shaped our training. So in countries like Scotland, it was the Storytelling Centre and other guides, um, university teachers or tutors, you know, who came on board and were passionate about one thing and they were kind of passing that passion along. So that's what really helped. Never miss an episode of the show. Subscribe at torpreneur.com forward slash subscribe. How helpful were the Scottish Tour Guide Association? We haven't really worked with them Okay. in depth. So we have certain different types of guides here. And when you're a blue badge guide, which is a, a very in-depth training, you have to do other tours as part of your curriculum. So now what started to happen is they come on our tour and they volunteer their time with us to mentor our guides. One of them in particular is the person that we're trying to work with on establishing supported places onto their courses and I spoke a little bit about that at arrival but it's been 
hard to I think it's also where you put your energy and how much time and you have so they are a busy organization and and we were a very very small one woman band when we started so we haven't really de- fully developed our relationship shall I say well after this episode airs I'm sure they'll be calling you because you know <laughs> absolutely I'll wait for um, your call that's um, right yeah. And I heard you say in your talk that some OTAs had come in to help you with training. So was that Airbnb and booking.com? Yeah. So Airbnb only had Airbnb experiences in London until March 2018. So I contacted them and said, I know you're looking into Edinburgh as a second location. Here's what we do. I would love to be an Airbnb experience. And they've been absolutely amazing. Um, with us and and helping us develop our product into an Airbnb experience for those we already have. And when we go to other cities, what that looks like. Um, the head of Airbnb experiences for the UK, he came on a tour in Leith, so in Edinburgh, um, and really liked it. I think that really up for doing more collaborative work um, and different things. And now we're launching Cardiff or in New York, which was our latest location. And we um, have those experiences online already. So it's been a massive help in terms of support. And uh, and as an impact experience, we don't pay any fee either. So 100% of the ticket price comes back to us and they um, always support in marketing it properly and, and advising us and or putting us in touch with Airbnb hosts who are the people who are going to promote our tours to their guests. Booking.com came about in terms of corporate volunteering. They wanted to do something and they have a lot of staff, especially in certain cities like Manchester. So the first year we get together as a team. So that means every Invisible City location once a year. And we started this last winter, so in Edinburgh, because it was home and it was easier. And we met again this year in Manchester. So last year they came and delivered something around customer reviews and travelers um, and and how we cater for them as opposed to any other customer relationship or customer service situation. This year in Manchester, they welcomed us for the day in their amazing training venue really looked after us so well and did a lot of things around conflict resolution. So how do you deal with more difficult customers about confidence building and their staff delivered that to us. They really want all of their staff to come and volunteer. But I was like, unfortunately, I don't think we can manage all of that. But whenever we need something, we have a phone, a, a telephone number we can call and say, could we maybe look at developing something together? You know, we were talking about doing something around leadership for our own team um, by some of their senior t- uh, staff members. So again, they're pretty open to collaboration. And that's amazing coming from such big companies as well. It goes back to what you said at the start of our conversation, though, you know, without getting political, because I think we've all had enough of that the last few weeks, but the, the capitalism, the economy, the, our systems do come in for a lot of, sometimes quite rightly, so criticism. But there are businesses like yours and Airbnb. I wasn't aware of the impact program until you mentioned it arrived. I thought, wow, how cool that you're getting 100% of the ticket. Wasn't aware of that and, and booking, stepping in and helping you. And there are organizations out there that really, you know, not, not just paying lip service to helping in the community, but actually committing resources, money and people to help. So it really warms my heart when I hear stories like this. I really believe that people do business with other people. So they don't do business with other businesses. 
So when they come and, and speak to us, and, I, and that's why, again, going back to honesty, I try to say, no, I can't manage 4,000 of your staff members coming and volunteering. Um, no, we don't need another webinar on doing this because we don't have the capacity to implement it. But what we really need is a couple of people coming on half a day to support us with that. I think with anyone out there trying to engage with, whether it's a big company or any other, I think anyone else or anything else, if you give clear direction, it's a lot easier for them to say, yep, okay, I'll do this, no problem, I can do this. Because it's a bit like, you know, you see the scripts and you know whether or not you can fit within that. So for booking.com, we were about to say, we need a half day and those are the skills we need developed. What do you think? And they were able to come back and say, yes, okay, that's how we'll develop it. And I think there's a, a lot of eagerness and willingness to do that and to do something good as well in a way that's easy for them. Because ultimately for their staff, it was only half a day. And it was a fun day because they were not behind the desks and they were doing something a bit different. So, you know, it, it's a win-win. Absolutely. I, I want to take you back to, if I may, the very first tour. I presume you went out with the tour guide, the very first tour that you put on. What was that like for you? I, I didn't go on the first practice tours. We had a team of volunteers at the time, including my sister, who gets dragged along in everything that I do. <laughs> she went on the tour and she gave me a, a pretty honest feed, piece of feedback about it. And then I went on it and I know the journey that people go through. And I, I met them, especially at the time, I met them at the very start and then during the training and then afterwards. So I felt really proud of the accomplishment and that journey that they had gone through. Um, that that kind of you know confidence that they gained and and the fact that they're not phased by speaking in front of a group of 10 20 you know and and that's an incredible feeling it makes it all worth it all those bloody hard moments like i said are, are definitely worth it um sometimes i come on tours i go on tours like these days and i'm amazed <laughs> how good they are and how good they are which is i don't forget but you know tours evolve and guides adapt and and again it's the same idea that day in day out i know the struggles that some of our guides still have some of the issues so when i see them do such an amazing job it makes me really happy to have started this journey and and really and it also grounds me to remembering why we do it why we do it and why we work so hard and and similarly when the experience is not so great it also reminds me that there's a lot of work to be done. So I did go on a tour with a girl who's currently training and she, there always comes a point where guides will, will say, I'm ready, I'm ready to tour. I can take anyone, any group, that's fine. So what we do is we do run uh, practice tours with various groups and instead of paying, they pay us in feedback. So she did that and it wasn't great. So it was, again, an incredible experience, you know, because I was like, no, it's not so good. But we also have the backup and the feedback to explain why and what we need to work on. What advice do you have for other tourpreneurs out there that have to give that kind of feedback to a new tour guide? Honesty. I try to be um, as honest as possible. 
some and it, it depends it's a bit like being a psych, uh, a psychologist some people are questioners so whatever you say they will want to know why you say this and where it comes from and some others are, are pleasers they want to please especially someone like me who's the boss you know who they see as the boss so they'll do anything that you want them to do or they'll say yes to anything so you kind of have to understand who you have in front of you and then provide the best feedback for them what i find very very helpful is when the feedback doesn't come from me so the fact that we have external guests coming on the tours um, and we use again you know volunteers corporates companies they want to come and help and we say actually you know we have this person in training it would be very helpful if you came on a practice tour um, so it's not going to be perfect you know don't consider that this is one of our invisible cities tour so they know that it's not maybe the standard that we usually run but at least they are able to come experience what we do and provide information and having this information which is external is a lot easier because all of a sudden those are not my opinions and my words and people take it a bit less personally so i would say having that external verification is really really important um, and comparison a really big thing for us is um tours go on each other's tours so they're able to say what people are good at that they may be not as good as uh, for, for you know maybe somebody has really great jokes and so all of a sudden they're like oh maybe i should include more humor in what i do others retain dates a bit better everybody gets to see what their personal skills and strengths are and that's really helpful as well because they inspire each other so you were achieving some success in edinburgh and at what point did you decide, because it's a lot of work then to scale up and you're in, is it five other cities right now? Yeah, four other cities, so five total. Five total. When did that decision come about? A great story, and I always say it, is when starting to think of a name of for the company, I had gone for Invisible Edinburgh. And I, had, I was part of a business program. As part of that, I had a coaching session. And Claire, who was the person I was talking to, said, no, don't call it Invisible Edinburgh, call it Cities, because one day, maybe in 10 years time, you'll want to go to other cities and you'll be stuck with a name because you'll be stuck to your city. And uh, that's the best piece of advice I ever got because um, I, I'm really glad that I listened. So in 2017, somebody, Alice, uh, who was a student at Manchester University, came on a tour in Edinburgh. And she was very want she was very much wanting to do something in her community and asked if there was something similar that existed in Manchester and if not, then what could we do to make it happen? So it happened to us as it happened to me as opposed to us actively going into an, another place and um, she volunteered on making Invisible Manchester happen for a whole year before we were able to get a bit of grant money and a bit of funding to kind of start things rolling and to employ her. So she was the driving force behind making Invisible Manchester happen. And if it wasn't for her, then it wouldn't have happened. But the university was very supportive as well in providing tutor time and, you know, a photocopy machine and a bit of funding as well for that. But recruiting was very, very hard in Manchester. So after a whole year of efforts, I rem last September, 
having a conversation and saying, okay, we will give it one last go. And if not, then we will park it because we can't seem to recruit anyone. We can't seem to gather enough momentum. It's not working. And maybe our efforts should, my efforts should definitely be put somewhere else. And then it all happened. I really believe in putting things out there. And the moment you start speaking about things out loud, then they happen. So I remember saying, you know what, I'm putting it out there into whatever, into the universe that we will give this one last chance. And if not, then it's not meant to be. And somehow, you know, somebody who had started the training and had disappeared came back and was finally ready through his own life to kind of take the step forwards to commit to this. And then she dedicated a lot more time to this. She graduated, so she had a lot more time as well because she didn't have uni anymore. So there were a lot of things that fell into place. And through that, it really kind of took off. And the moment you have one, it's easier to have two, three, four, because people feel inspired by that. So they want to come on board and create Invisible Glasgow, Invisible York, Invisible Cardiff, you know, you just need the one. Same with the guides. Well, like I said before, all you need is to find one person to inspire the others. It's very similar in replicating and scaling to other places. But um, I think this, the only credit I can give myself is to have been opened to the idea and to have been kind of um, welcoming with that and, and to welcome her into making the idea happen, not to have been too guarded around either the idea, the concept or the way we do things. I was like, no, nope, let's work together. Absolutely try to make it happen and, and see what comes out of this. Thankfully, what came out of it was our first kind of uh, other location than Edinburgh. I was looking at your Edinburgh tours because I lived in Edinburgh for a couple of years in the uh, mid-90s. Uh, and I was really, I mean, these are really good tours. You've got the stories of crime and punishment, real women of Edinburgh, history of the train spying generation, which I must confess that having lived in Leith in the mid-90s and then I went back a couple of years ago, it's completely different to how Absolutely. I remember it. So to to have someone, you know, give a tour and talk about some of because Leith was always the same now, but back then was full of some incredible characters. I wish I was, you know, like Mark Twain, a great writer, and just write about some of the things I saw in Leith back then. And, and those come from our guides themselves. Well, I think we have to give a lot of credit to people. They have a great sense of what would work what would be entertaining and what wouldn't. And sometimes, so, not everyone is like that. Some people have, you know, really poor ideas. Um, so our job is to direct this the best way we can. So in New York, we have the railway history, you know, we have Guy Fawkes, um, we have a family-friendly tour. So people are super creative and, and want to do something that's entertaining. Um, and when people have no idea, then we just replicate what we know works well. So a crime and punishment tour. But again, we, I feel really, really lucky that we found guides that had personal connections with, with these places. So for the least tour, you know, our guide Paul used to own a cafe. That was the first cafe where you were allowed to smoke cannabis in in um, Scotland. So, which got shut and he had loads of problems <laughs> with it later on, but it makes for a great story. And the other day, I mean, this is a true story. We went to the pub for a quiz, you know, one which we do a lot here, quiz night and you win a prize. And he was one of the questions. 
what was the the cafe you know in lease and he, he sent loads of photos and was like oh my god and i was like fame at last and that's what wow. we you know he is a local celebrity so how incredibly lucky is it of us to have found the guide to do that you know to be able to tell that story in his own words and and he explains why he believes it was a great business and what happened and then his trouble with the police and what you know and it makes for a very entertaining tour but also um, as you know if you've lived in the area very connected to the area because you had a lot of issues with drug use and and you know loads of the consequences of drug use so socially speaking it also makes for a very very entertaining tour but that unfortunately we can only it depends a lot on who you recruit and who the people are um, that want to come on our training. So far, we've been incredibly lucky um, and have very, very great um, stories to tell. And, and I have to say, I, I was uh, so happy to see that one of your tours has a haggis box. So yes. I, I'm sorry to all our, our vegan listeners, but uh, <laughs> I love haggis. You can't get it over here. So I was like, I, oh, I definitely go on that for the haggis box. Yeah. So and that came about with a wee collaboration with a local business who sell haggis at a, you know, in one of the old police boxes. So it's a, a, a kind of food uh, street chart, you know, for the equivalent of that. And in the summer, they sell ice cream. And in the winter, they sell haggis. And they were just two folk wanting to do something good. So they would give free haggis to the community and um, to people who wanted it and maybe needed it at, at the end of the day instead of wasting the food. So they would give our guides sometimes haggis boxes and so i approached them and said could we maybe do something where we collaborate and we give visitors haggis as well as an option if they want and and yeah and they were up for it so that's what what started it fantastic fantastic you have a, a beautiful website how, how did you go about building that oh thank you so much um I used a connection of mine. Um, so again, you know, I used to work with a web developer in the past in another organization. So I, I went to ask, starting my own business, I want to spend no money on anything. So I asked him and I said, his name is Simon. I'll send him the podcast and he can take credit for that one. He helped from the beginning. He really wanted to support and he's a genuine good guy. So he was like, yeah, I'll help you, no problem. Um, and he was in partnership with another web developer at the time. And over years, he stopped doing that. But our web developer is this second guy he was in partnership with. So we, we are still with him. And, and it was a lot of going back and forth and uh, trying to develop something that would look like us and that would feel like us. And same for our logos and our illustrations. A lot of are done by a local illustrator who's a friend of mine and is a single mom. So I was like, I really want to support you. And I wish I could buy your artwork all the time, but I can't because I don't have the money. However, I'm working in on this idea. Can you help me design something? And, and she did one logo, two logos, three illustrations. And, you know, now she's our official one. So she also is the one who does all the doodles and and the feels of it. And it was really important to us that even if we don't use social businesses, we'll, we'll use local businesses that, because I know her, make her and her family live. And, and we still use them and are faithful to them. So a lot of the time people say, how many staff members do you have? 
well, they are part of the team, even though they are contractors, you know. So I always say, and there's Vincent, and there's Chris, and there's uh, Nicola, who are all these people, and they feel empowered, and that sense of ownership that the business is also thanks to them. Luke for the photography, you know. Again, I used my network really well. I have to say, bless them. I went in and said, I have no money, but can you please do this? And when I have money, I will pay you, I promise. And they were kind to me, and they said yes. So I, I find that, you know, maybe the more techie things are not my forte so working on a website you know i don't understand a lot of the things uh, so it's important for me to work with someone who gives me the time and space and explanations around it so that i know how to navigate this so they all have been like that did you know every weekday shane curates the most interesting news articles in tours and activities and sends them out in a snappy daily digest grab your copy of the tourpreneur daily briefing at www.tourpreneur.com and in terms of working with fair harbor who i understand you partner with for your online bookings how long have you been working with fair harbor for not long uh, since september time i want to say so that's a big mistake that I made is thinking that because we were different and we are social enterprise and, you know, we needed to have our own booking system. So one of the pieces of the brief to our web developer was to build our own booking engine in the back end. So you can imagine the amount of work and and skills and all of that that was needed. And he did a brilliant job, but a lot of the things took a long time and didn't work and took a, a lot of attempts for us to realize what we actually needed. Um, so we invested a bit of money into that and time and effort and obviously, and then I realized actually, you know, they are great systems out there. I don't need to reinvent the wheel. So in September, really started working with Fair Harbor and then decided to go with them. So announcing to somebody you've worked really closely with Right, look, actually, we have made the decision now to ditch that work that you've done for us all these years. But just, you know, the booking engine part and to go with a big company like Fair Harbor was a hard email to write. You know, it was a, a hard thing. But he was like, oh, my God, I can't imagine how stressed out you would have been to write this to me. Don't worry at all about it. Obviously, he took it really, really well. And the experience with Fair Harbor for us has been really great, I have to say. The people in the team are really supportive and we actually work with um, a girl who's from Scotland, Katrina, so she really, really supports us. We are a very small team, so having a person you can actually phone and say, look, I've got this problem with this booking, can you help, is amazing. And I have to say, so far so good, they do a great job, but she does an amazing job at um, supporting us. So I, I think picking an online booking platform is one of the toughest decisions that entrepreneurs have to make. So you know now, because you've worked with them since September, that you've got great account management, but what was it at the time when you were talking to them? Because I'm sure others were calling you as well. What was it about Fair Harbor that made you think, yeah, this is the company we want to work with? I think the personal relationship, people doing business with other people, the everyone that I spoke at Fair Harbor in that process of choosing what booking platform I wanted was incredibly helpful um, and understanding and wanting to support us even in in the things that make us so different so you know sometimes we need to cancel tours and we need to 
um, or cancel availabilities at short notice and things like that. I wanted to know how easy that would be for us. Um, they were quite understanding. So that was a massive bonus. Another element for us is we priced our tours quite low when starting and have had to go up and up and up and up a little bit. And there are still some conversations within the team whether or not we should charge more. So I was like, I don't want to add um, the fee within the price that we indicate. So their pricing model also was a big part of it. And then I just went with it. So I think how easy it was. And one of the things, for instance, I said, if I put you in touch with our web developer, can you integrate things? Like, do you need me? Like, I don't want to be involved in this because I don't understand it. So I don't want to be involved in, in going into the back end of our organization. Like, if I just pass you on to Chris, is that okay? And they were like, yeah, absolutely. So that journey as well was a great um, was a, a factor as well in choosing them. Sure. And are you working with any OTAs? Uh, so TripAdvisor, Viator, um, Expedia, but like uh, a lot of other operators, um, it's hard and it takes time, which I understand is a common piece of feedback. Who would you say gives you the most bookings or what, what channel gives you the most, most bookings? Booking? Well, it's interesting because... Airbnb experiences last year um, was about 20% of our overall bookings alone. So that was a lot. And they gave us a lot of bookings. So last year, I would have said Airbnb. But right now, we do a lot more direct bookings via our website and our own marketing and our own kind of directly to customers. So it depends on cities. In Glasgow, for instance, we sell a lot on TripAdvisor for some reason. Airbnb experiences at the moment, I would say. We also spend more time on it. I think you only get what you put in. So we work a lot more on refining those pages and, and those offers and even the relationship with customers and things like that. That works really well for us. But Urban Adventure as well has been, uh, I met someone from them last September and then we came on board for Edinburgh that's coming together finally with a tour. So that's next year is going to be for 2020 is definitely one of the first pre-booked. We have a lot of pre-booked tours already and they, they account for a big part of that. Through Urban Adventures. Yes. Fantastic. And, and I asked this question because Olga, who's also in Edinburgh, runs Cobble Tales, which is an architecture tour, you know, had this challenge that a lot of tour operators have that her tours are quite specialist. And, you know, how does she work to get her tours discovered? You know, if someone's in Edinburgh, they do Royal Mile tours and, you know, Whiskey Trail and stuff, but they don't know there's this architecture. And I imagine it's the same for your Leith tour, for instance. I, I think this is the big challenge throughout that people look for those kind of lighthouse products in a city. So very intrigued to hear how you're uh, becoming discovered by people who, who are visiting Edinburgh, for instance. It depends a lot on your city. Edinburgh is very competitive because you have a million and one tours available yes. um, of everything. Every company offers you a Royal Mile tour. But then in cities like Glasgow, you have a, f a lot less tours. And then I believe it's about thinking out of the box. So we do a lot of community events, for instance, that attract the public in a different way. So for instance, every last Saturday of the month, 
we run a street barber project, which is more related to our social mission. So we give free haircuts and shaves directly from the street to homeless people, to homeless men. And um, we do this from a police box. So we do this from a tiny little venue directly on the street. We have massive banners, massive things. We do teas and coffees on a very busy street where the footprint is really high. So for us, it's a clever way of marketing our tours through the social good that we do because everybody that stops and says what are you giving people haircuts we say yes because we are part of invisible cities and that's what we do so we do pampering events for women we collect a lot of donations of toiletries sanitary items from moms from women groups around the city and they don't know about walking tours but now Mm -hmm. when they are looking for one they know about ours for sure because they have collected toiletries in their workplace or a home for us. It's about thinking of other ways and other things that, you know, through the Haggis partnerships, they promote our tour now and they don't really promote other um, tour companies because, you know, that's so everybody, every customer that goes to them gets to be um, reached and gets to hear about what they see about our tour. So I think it's about what else can you do to be, to be different and for people to remind to remember you because we tried leafleting and that you know the things that every other company does first i don't particularly believe in wasting more paper and that's uh you know another thing i'd rather go um for something that's more environmentally friendly but the return wasn't really high want to connect with other tourpreneurs then join our facebook group at tourpreneur.com forward slash facebook How did you go about coming up with a structure how to pay your tour guides? That's the most difficult question of them all. Because, so in the UK, in every city, every guide is in a different situation. Some people have state benefits. Some people don't have anything. Some people want to be employed and on the payroll and some others don't. So we go on an individual basis. So depending on what the guide once then we'll go with that we had support from a law firm in terms of employment laws and what was possible what wasn't possible what was you know more beneficial for people so we have guides who are self-employed and for instance if they sell the street magazine then selling the street magazine is one stream of income for them and doing the tours is another one so that works quite well some people are on the payroll some people are not. So we really work on an individual basis. It's a massive issue for us at the moment because it isn't a unified system. Mm. Um, and as we grow, I would like to find one set of rules for everybody. But at the moment, it's, it's not possible. This is more relevant to the country we're in, in the UK. We have people who are on work allowance, so they are allowed to work certain hours a week. Some others are not at all. Some others don't have any income from anywhere else. Some people don't have bank accounts, you know. So sometimes we start the training and we know that we have to do these things with people so we'll have to open a bank account we'll have to look at that we'll have to go to certain appointments where their support workers you know or they are um here with the job centers you know or we'll have to fight for them uh, when certain things get taken away from them especially in the current political world that we have in the uk it's the hardest question we've been lucky like i said to get support from 
and Brody's, which is a low firm in terms of employment and, and what works better, you know, they were really good again at understanding the difficulties that we have and that only we have, you know, that for some people it's not about the income, it's about the support that they can receive. We talked about a lot of different models, you know, like a, a zero hour contract. So you get paid for what you do, but you're not really being paid for everything else. And how do you then manage holidays and things like that? And what's better for the individual at the end? Um, and that was what was important to me. So that we worked in a way that was flexible enough, but that was always right by the people that we work for. And I think what I'm getting from you is I hadn't thought that through for our listeners who might want to replicate what you're doing in their particular country is to go find out what the legal situation is. Because Absolutely. Obviously you don't ever want one of your tour guys to lose benefits, you know, that they may be on because they're working for you, et cetera, or they're not declaring it because they're, you know, come on, we're all scared. I'm scared of the tax man. Mm, you know, so I, right. I don't want yeah. to tell them anything. <laughs> and ultimately it's also this fine line between support and doing everything for people, you know, yeah. you have to own to yeah. own your responsibilities within your life and True. and so make the decisions that are right for you. And sometimes that decision isn't, to go and work or you know i think it's everybody's different and like you say it's it's finding the right some people prefer to volunteer and that's okay but then we need to support them into gaining employment full-time part-time if that's what they want um it's the hardest question of them all i know legislation is different in different places so having legal support is really important but even with legal support it's such a mess that it's such a complex area that, you know, when you have people who are self-employed and need to do the tax return. And when literacy is a bit tricky, then how the hell do you do tax return? I was self-employed in the past and I found that quite hard. So Absolutely. It's, it's about providing that support. I've got two quick questions before we wrap up because I want to be respectful of your time. First of all, so you work incredibly hard. I know you're motivated and inspired but you must get low points as well where you just think, what am I doing? How do you keep yourself motivated? So, you know, who motivates you? Who inspires you? I think other entrepreneurs, other social entrepreneurs, friends and family. My mother really inspires me and motivates me. And you're absolutely right. In our world where we promote a lot what we do, I go and speak to different people all the time and I show you an Instagram version of what we do and what my life mm -hmm. is, you know. And um, I was in a very, very busy period traveling around, you know, to Florida, to Lithuania, to London, to different places. And people around me, even, you know, friends and family see that and see the jet setting life and they're like, ooh, it's really great. And again, I have to be really conscious of moments when I feel down or feel, you know, tired or, or demotivated. And, and I think it's talking to others who feel the same make me feel yeah. not alone. Yeah. Um, I, I look at my mother who is a, a single mom and she had a lot, many struggles in her life. And I often think, you know, if she got out of that, if she made, she survived through it all. I can survive through this. That's okay. And she's also the most humble person. She just thinks everything is so normal, you know. So my sister and I have to remind her that it's not. Sometimes I, I look at that and that's a great strength of a pool of inspiration for me. And I have a coach 
I mean, she sorts out my whole life, not only my my work <laughs> life. She's incredibly, you know, motivating and obviously provides you with tools to be more peaceful and mindful. And I'm really into this now, you know, which is the thing I grew into as I started my business, which is mindfulness and being thankful and and pause and being in the moment and, and start manifesting things. It's kind of provided me with a lot of peace and with a lot of strength and not being jealous of what other people would do or not being angry about certain things or not letting it letting it um, eat me up, um, which is a thing I only came into because in the past I would be very aggressive and, and very angry at things. So I think whatever... For me, that really works. Now I'm trying to, you know, I wasn't, like I said, in a period where I was really tired and and I realized that I hadn't done any mindfulness or anything in at least a couple of months. So I think I really need to go back to that. I think what I'd like to do later this year in 2020 is to have a roundtable on the show about this subject because there's a lot of stress in using mindfulness and I think a lot of entrepreneurs have tips and techniques and podcasts and apps that they can recommend and I'm very big into our mental health and I'm really hoping a lot of our entrepreneur listeners take some time out during Christmas if they're not running tours of course just to relax and recharge the batteries and, and like you say live in the moment and be appreciative of it so we'll do that later this year my, my final question for you is you're building up a huge amount of experience in the field, in the trenches, in what you're doing. And I heard it arrival. A lot of people came to my booth and they're like blown away by your talk. And they're like, yeah, we want to do something like this. We want to give back. We're not sure how. Would you ever consider, and I know you're incredibly busy, so it might not be right now, but in the future, I would love to see you, Zakia, write a book or create an e-course of some kind that People can can access that and then they can access what you've been going through and, and you know, like how you wrote your business plan, things you've learned along the way. Because I, I just think, you know, you, there's so many empty suit gurus out there that talk about this stuff because they've read it in a book or they've got an MBA. But you're out there, you're battle hardened, you've got the scars, you can really share so much experience and knowledge with us that I would love to see you do that in the future. Well, that's a, a brilliant idea. So here we go. I think you and I can. St- keep talking about this because I would love to see where that goes. I think, again, thank you so much for thinking all of that and, and saying all of that out loud. I think a lot of people say, oh, you're really generous with your time and what you think and what you believe in. And I really believe that ultimately I only got to be confident enough to start my own business, to go out there and do it and to learn the things I learned because others told me that it was okay and supported me into doing this and, and taught me along the way. So if I can do the same for other people, whether that's, you know, the other entrepreneur to take time off and just and not work, you know, on your business in your holiday home, but to actually have a holiday or if it's some inspiring somebody to do a business or whatever, I would be super happy to do that and, and honored. And I would love to do that. I think it's you never set up anything to be an inspiration for others, you know. And I listened to the 10 Minute Espresso podcast the other day and um, where somebody cited me as an inspiration and, and he was lovely and, and very kind. Um, 
worded and I was like, oh my God, I was excited for the whole day, you know, yeah. about that. Soren and Alice. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, it really touched my heart and he said such lovely, lovely words. It was really great. But you never set up to do anything like that. You know, if that happens along the way, then that's great. But I never really started anything to feel like I'll become an inspiration for people. And no, but that's why you're authentic and that's why people actually listen to you because you're not one of these gurus who's out to make a ton of money by doing this. My bit of advice for you is, and I'm sure you might be doing this anyway, is to journal each day things that you're really happy about, maybe some issues you've had. And because I, I find you know, in my corporate life particularly that you're just constantly firefighting. And at the end of the year, you're like, okay, I achieved this revenue, hired this amount of people, promoted X amount. But you forget about the day-to-day -day firefighting that really makes you learning. And we learn by kind of osmosis. But when I started journaling every day about, you know, how was today, what went well, what could have gone better and things like that, I just had this, you know, journal full of ideas and, and information that I think if you were to do that, you could come up with a course that you could sell in the future because then you can use that to generate profits to put back in the business or donate or whatever it may be. I mean, I really feel that, like I say, you know, I, I can't say it enough. You're you're in the trenches, you're in the front lines, on the front lines rather, and people would pay for that experience. It's well thank you. I appreciate it. And and I think it's a great piece of advice. I'll I'll start thinking in, into that and and looking at that. And I think also, you know, we don't have anything figured out. I no. I think, you know, no. a big piece is a lot of the things that I make up as I go along. I just say it with more confidence now. You're right in that what I love about the whole tourpreneur world is the majority of people I speak to didn't go to business school, don't have MBAs, they have a passion for a topic and they go out there and create a tour and they just crash on and learn as they go along. And that's the beautiful thing about what we're doing in this industry. We're, we're, we're making travelers really happy with, by their experience. We're able to hire people, contribute to the local economy. And, you know, there are hotel schools. You can go to Cornell here in the United States or the hotel school in The Hague and learn how to run a hotel. But there is very, I mean, there's trip school that Mitch runs and Kelsey Tonner has a course, but there's not much that's out there to really educate. We kind of learn as we go along. And that's exciting, but also really frustrating. So again, you know, with what you're doing, if you were to put it into a course at some point, I, I think people would, would be really happy to pay and, and study with you. Yeah, so that, here we go. That'll go into my business plan. Fantastic. Uh, from now on, a new stream of income. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. And as we wrap up, I would urge all of our listeners to help Zakia by going to invisible-cities.org and retweeting to your followers, Instagramming, Facebooking. Let your friends know, particularly any who are going to the five cities that Invisible Cities are operating in, that these tours are available. And not only are they really fantastic experiences, but putting your money towards good. Yes, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, Zakia, I thank you very much for coming on the show. Will you be at Arrival Berlin? Yes, I will be. Look, I, like I said, one of our Edinburgh-based guides, um, Sunny is going to be speaking. So yeah. it won't be me on the stage, but I'll go along with him and I will Fantastic. attend the whole conference. So will you be there too? I am hoping to attend, yes. Okay. So uh, I look forward to seeing you there. Maybe we can have a little catch up as well with you both for the show. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. I would love that. Thank you so much for um, having me and, and all the very uh, inspiration to do more things and, and um, the interest and, and support. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Torpreneur podcast. Be sure to visit torpreneur.com to join the conversation and access the show notes, including links to the resources mentioned on today's episode. This is Torpreneur.